0: Unlike me. Hello there, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they wish they could bury and forget... My guest in this episode is the wonderful Greg Jenner. Now Greg is a public historian, an author and a broadcaster. He hosts the chart-topping BBC podcast You're Dead to Me, was a key part of the multi-award-winning BBC comedy TV show Horrible Histories, being solely responsible for the factual accuracy of over 2,000 sketches and 150 plus comedy songs. He also was a key member of the team on the BAFTA-nominated film Horrible Histories, the movie Rotten Romans, and is the author of four books. His latest is a funny and colourfully illustrated children's book called You Are History, all about the global history of 50 objects children might use every day. Greg was the presenter of BBC Radio 4's Past Forward, A Century of Sound, the BBC's award-nominated children's podcast, Homeschool History, and the Audible series, A Somewhat Complete History of Sitting Down. He guested four times on the award-winning QI podcast, No Such Thing As A Fish, and once on the Do The Right Thing podcast. And now I'm delighted to say he's joining me to reveal the five things he'd want in a time capsule. So here is the brilliant Greg Jenner. Greg, my dear man. Hello. Hello, how are you? There's you surrounded by the enormous amount of work that you do. <laughs> well, <laughs> well <laughs> some of it, yeah. Some of it. I can't believe you found the time to do this. Well, I mean, I know you said you would, but I thought to myself, I can't imagine that you're ever going to find a spare hour in your day. Well, I, f- I felt bad that I was always, was always saying,
2: not not now, later, now, later maybe, maybe later. <laughs> but it's uh, funny enough, actually, this sort of post-Christmas lull yeah. Seems to have been quite a good little spot for just popping in a couple of fun things where I don't have to think. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly I had an email saying you just need four things and one thing to and I was like, oh no. I have to think <laughs> oh no. i sort of struck between rock and yep. a hard place on on wanting to do a lovely jolly chat, but at the same time suddenly having to think about what would I want to consign to future hereafter
0: yeah i mean really it's just a way of having a lovely jolly chat yeah so, no, it's, so um, don't feel any pressure okay but it's amazing to have you on I, i'm an enormous admirer of all the things you've done and I, i'm very jealous that you spent quite so long working with the wonderful people of uh, horrible histories <laughs> yes that was a real, a real treat um yeah. i've been to, i saw richard herring last night and he sends his love oh lovely yeah we went to oh, see yeah. him talking to bob mortimer oh uh, love him yeah. yeah, I know. And he had to explain that Bob Mortimer was a stand-in and most of the audience had bought tickets to see Bill Bailey. And Bob Mortimer <laughs> was saying, I'm, I'm really sorry. i do you know... <laughs> what? You're joking. Yeah, that's,
2: that's not a stand-in, is it? That's, not really. Yeah.
0: And it's not an upgrade because Bill Bailey is amazing. But it, yeah.
2: it's like saying, oh, I really want to see Elvis. Oh, no, the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>,
0: <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it right. was a joy. It was fabulous.
2: Yeah, I, Bob is someone... We have long tried to get onto uh, You're Dead to Me on the podcast because mm-hmm. I'm such an enormous, uh, not just fan of his work, but I just hugely admire his, I mean, I loved his, his book, his memoir. Yeah. And he seems to have found this sort of national treasure status quite late in life, which is quite nice. It's interesting,
0: isn't it? Mm. Ever since, in fact, he stopped working with Jim, they sort of yeah. almost stopped, didn't they? they As if they stopped, and then somebody said to him, "Bob, do you fancy doing this?" He said, "Well, all right, yeah, I'm free."
2: Yeah, and I guess it may be the health crisis thing. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's the fishing show. Maybe it's simply that we expect men of a certain age to get increasingly more angry and tetchy and shouting at clouds. And he's, <laughs> he seems to have got more cuddly and more, uh, yeah, more sort quite.
0: of warm and 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 sort of gently cheeky rather than. Yeah, my son John, who I, I think you yeah. know, who's yeah. a friend of Seb, your mm. brother. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Small world. Tiny course, world. Yeah. You know, Stephen Wright used to say, it's small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a good joke. Yeah.
0: But, but he was, um, it's interesting. He said that he'd heard Bob talk about the fact that. It came as a surprise that it suddenly happened. And actually, that uh, it was only when he was a guest on um, Would I Lie to You. Oh, yeah. He started talking, and then everybody started to roar with laughter at him. And he thought, oh, I can be funny on my own. Isn't that That's interesting? So interesting? It's so, I yeah. mean,
2: what, three decades of yep. being in a double act? That must be so... In- I mean, obviously, you saw Richard Herring last night, who was in a double act for a, you know, a long time, but has since yeah. been a solo act for a long time. But when you're so intrinsically attached to somebody else, not just in terms of how the public sees you, but in how you create, how you perform, the dynamic that you put. You know, if you've got Buddy, Mm. to suddenly not have the Buddy must be so
0: daunting. and Very weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you see that again and again with acts that have done that. You look at, for example, Ernie Wise, who, Mm. who sort of went, well, what do I do? I can sing and stuff. But actually, in the history of comedy, Ernie Wise is probably one of the greatest... Set up people in right. They just got this amazing skill to say things in a very serious way that Eric Mm. Malcolm could knock down, and again and again you see that. But they sort of slightly underestimate their own skills, don't they? That's interesting. And also Vic and Bob,
2: neither of them was the straight man. So, and neither the (laughs) neither (laughs) neither of them were uh, were any sort of man. They were sort of (laughs) they kind of innovated their own ludicrous dynamic but they're both just stupidly silly but yeah no, I think it's wonderful we you know listening to Bob's memoir sort of explained a little bit about why we haven't been able to get him on the show he said he's got a profound fear of being made to look stupid mm. and he says he finds it very anxious uh, well, anxiety making to be in a room with people who are cleverer than him and uh-huh. it's such a shame because a he's obviously incredibly clever yeah and B, obviously that's not something we'd ever want to do. We, we always want our guests to feel super relaxed and comfortable and having a good time, and that we've chosen a guest to be with them on you know, for a reason, because mm. it's, it's almost matchmaking. You're trying to put together two strangers to have a conversation, as you're doing today, right?
0: Well, I, but I think you do it beautifully, really. I mean, it's very interesting how quite often the person who becomes funny is the expert, and the comedian is the person who's fascinated by the facts.
2: That's what I love about the show. It's my favourite thing, is that historians are... They're very similar to comedians. Mm-hmm. And and we never assume that. We always assume that there would be some sort of radical difference between them. Because on the one hand, a historian is meant to be studious and serious. Yeah. And comedians are meant to be silly and flippant and clowns. But obviously, if you, you, know, you know the history of comedy, you know that the, the clown is often the truth speaker. And actually, historians often you end up in that position because of deep passion. You've yeah. committed your life to one thing. One thing that happened centuries ago, <laughs> Yeah, no one else cares. And no. you're, for you, it's the most important thing in the world. So the fact that they are often funny off the cuff or they are often passionate or people warm to them and go, wow, that guy's so amazing, she's incredible, isn't mm. surprising to me because this is someone who has spent years trying to master the subject and then learn how to communicate it to others. yeah. And then if you put them in a room with someone who's professionally funny and curious, which is what comedians are, mm-hmm. you're going to get a great conversation. And yeah, I love the way the dynamic changes through the episode. And they both relax into each other's company and I yeah. have to do much less heavy lifting. And I can just, you know, I can, I can be a third wheel who's not needed sometimes, which is great because I could just sit there and have a front row seat. <laughs> I've got so, yeah. all
0: these facts. I don't yeah, need to say them. Yeah.
2: Exactly. I don't, you know, I've got a script if I need it, but sometimes you just let them have a chat. Good. What a
0: lovely idea. You don't think about the idea that the fool in history has always been the truth speaker. I think that's a great thing to point out. The thing of Shakespeare, of uh, mm-hmm. Lear, the fool, and, yeah. and, and yeah. Feste, in fact, in 12 comics. Yeah. Same thing. Uh,
2: and, and obviously that is, to a certain extent, something drawn from actual history. You, you see it in... Certainly in the kind of Jacobean court, there was this notion of the jester who was allowed to be a lot more cheeky and subvert power. And, you know, uh, there was a famous one called Will Kemp, I think it was, but um, there was Mm. this sort of understanding that within within the limits of decency, the, (laughs) the clown, the jester, the fool could mock the king have a go at the Queen, you know, mm-hmm. raises eyebrows towards the latest you know, religious policy, you know, kick a bishop <laughs> up the arse, all that sort of thing. And, and it's a really interesting dynamic that you see, obviously, in, in Commedia dell'arte and it, sort of classic theatre. But I think it's then gone into the tradition of the sort of mid-20th century satire school, you know, the, the classic mm. establishment club, uh, Peter Cook Dudley Moore, our idea of satire that even now ends up with the kind of Ian Hislop tradition, of the righteous giggler who is, on the one hand, very funny, and on the other hand, indignant with rage. Mm. I think you find that tradition going back to medieval times. But obviously the comedic tradition of, of comedy as a political tool is an ancient Greek idea. Yeah, and and you get that in the kind of Aristophanes plays, which we don't have most of them, but we we have some. The Cloud is the most famous one, where he's absolutely ripping the piss out of Pythagoras and Socrates <laughs> and these men who were known and were famous and were important, and he's going, "This guy, what an absolute Belen <laughs> And that's two thousand four hundred years ago, so. Yes.
0: Yeah, It's very strange, isn't it? You, you've discovered now, of course, that actually the real dictators of recent times have been even more skilled at cutting that off. Yeah. That actually one of the important things they do is they either use their own form of satire to ridicule mm. a minority or they cut off every other form of comedy. Yeah, it's hard to have faith in modern politics, I think, the state mm. of the world. But as
2: a, as a historian, we're meant to have the roadmap. You know, that's the thing. You're meant to... The argument is you study the past and know the future. I, j- I just don't think that's true anymore. I just, uh. don't, I just don't think... I mean, you definitely see cyclical patterns. You definitely see there are loops and, re- and repeating echoes. And I've seen things many times before and gone, yeah, I, I know that one. Mm. But I just don't think it's... I, I don't think we're living in an era of predictable events anymore. No. And uh, I think that's terrifying in some ways. Uh. <laughs>
0: But, yeah. oh, 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 oh we've gone dark you're right sorry though. comedy right. show no, no lights, it's not necessarily a comedy chats. show no, you're absolutely right Greg and and therefore we should look back we should look back as as all sensible people do and as, as you've done for your whole career yeah
2: yes look back in anger or look back in glee I can't tell yeah I'm, yeah. I'm mostly looking back with a giggle that's mostly my career but yeah yes <laughs> well, um,
0: it's a fantastic career. So, um, did you want to talk to about anything that you've got coming out at the moment?
2: Oh, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, as a, as a general thing, the new series of You're Dead to Me is on air at the moment, mm-hmm. Series 7. Uh, we've just had our 100th episode about the Bloomsbury Group, which was an absolute <laughs> joy to record. Uh, we'll be finishing the series with a live special about Mozart. Wow. Where we'll, we'll be joined by the BBC Concert Orchestra, which is incredibly exciting. Ah. Uh, will be playing some Mozart tunes and... You know, that series will continue with Series 8 as well, later in the year. Mm. There are two versions of the show. There's a longer podcast version, which is an hour, and it's a bit naughtier and a bit ruder and a bit swearier and more <sighs> detailed. And there's a 28-minute radio edit for Radio 4. They go out on Saturday mornings, and that one's got no swearing. So if you've got kids in the car or you don't, you don't want a long podcast, the 28-minute one is, is sort of easier. Mm. Um, but yeah, You're Dead to Me on the BBC actually you can get it anywhere you can get it any podcast app but yeah. that'll, be, that'll be lovely and if anyone's got kids uh, i write i mean i write books for adults too but i've got a brand new series of children's books coming out in april uh, fantastic book 1 is about ancient egypt and book 2 comes out in october about roman britain and it's called totally chaotic history
0: um, so. <laughs> fantastic i can't wait to see them thank you so let's look at the things that you're going to put into a time capsule Greg.
2: So what do you want? Do you want one at a time or do you want all four? With, no, let's do,
0: let's do one at a time and we'll okay. see what each one brings up in conversation. Okay. So what's the first thing? First on the list is
2: my, my favourite movie of all time. It is a masterpiece of cinema. It is incredibly funny. It's technically dazzling. Uh, you can play it to anyone of any age and they will be delighted by it because I have done this because I have played it for my then two-year-old. She's now four. And I've played it to all manner of friends, and the film is "Singing in the Rain." Oh, and it is. Has that work
0: for a two-year-old?
2: Oh, she loved it. Wow. Absolutely adored it. She learned all the dance routines. What well, you know, as a, <laughs> as a, as best as a two-year-old can, flailing her limbs. But she knows lines from the movie. She knows the um, you know, the classic umbrella scene. She knows, you know, make them laugh. Oh. She, yeah, it, it's a. It's an astonishingly good piece of filmmaking in every, <laughs> every direction. And I bang on about it all the time. I'm always talking about this film. And I'm sure people are sick of hearing about it. But I just think it's incredible. I just mm. think it's an incredible movie uh, made in 1952, I think, off the top of my head. But I think it's one of those extraordinary films that should not work. Yeah. Because it's, it's a
0: lazy jukebox musical. Mm-hmm. They did take tunes from other shows, didn't they? And put them they, together.
2: They not just took other... The, it, so it's the producer took his own tunes. <laughs> so he remonetized his own back catalogue. Brilliant.
0: Um, it's, it's the Mamma Mia of the yeah, 1950s. It
2: literally is. And, it, and they took songs from the 1920s and they took songs from his back catalogue and they smushed them together. And he said to the two screenwriters, the movie plot needs to involve a man singing in the rain. Mm. That's it. That's your, your, your mission, is to write a movie where a man sings in the rain. <laughs> Go. And from that incredibly cynical position of a Hollywood producer saying, right, well, what we need here is a sort of lazy cash cow that remonetizes work I've already done. In fact, there's only, I think there's only one original song in the movie, which is itself a complete rip-off of an existing movie called Be a Clown. So mm-hmm. the song, Make him Laugh, I love the song Make him Laugh. It's a total yeah. rip-off of Be a Clown. Who does Be a Clown? I think it's Cole Porter. Ah. But it, when you listen to them two side by side, it's an incredible rip-off. Like, yeah. is, you know, like no judge in the land is letting <laughs> you get away with that one. Um, <laughs> so this is a movie that's completely compiled out of spare parts with the cynical undertaking of like, let's just make a movie with Gene Kelly in it. And it's got to be about a man who sings in the rain. So from, mm-hmm. that, from that starting position, you're going, oh my God, this is going to be so kind of devoid of creativity or innovation. But where you end up is a film about film about film. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily clever, funny, still, observation of the film industry of the 19... Well, it's, so it's about the coming of sound. So it's mm. about the invention of sound cinema in the 1920s, whereby the studio suddenly realise this new technology is going to revolutionise cinema and suddenly the actors have to learn how to speak. But also you get these sort of transitions in the filmmaking process where the hierarchy of the set changes because suddenly the guy who does the sound becomes the king. Yeah. So the director is no longer the king because the sound (laughs) guy is the king. He's the guy who, you know, so you get this kind of fascinating subversion of the ranks. But the movie is about the making of a movie musical Called singing in the right Well, called the <laughs> called the the dancing cavalier. Actually, mm. um, so it's a sort of movie within a movie.
0: That's the character that Gene Kelly is famous for, isn't it? In movies, he's, that's
2: it. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. famous
0: for being this swashbuckling character. So it's in a way, it's a Errol Flynn, isn't it?
2: Right, and he'd obviously and he'd he'd already been in um, the Musketeers, so he'd already done a, a swashbuckling movie, mm. and so he's playing an American actor who has himself climbed the greasy pole from kind of being a kind of low rent vaudeville hoofer. And then low rent stunt man who did any stunt you needed doing, you know he'll he'll yeah. crash your plane for you. He'll go into a burning building. He'll fall off a, you know he'll get punched off a bridge. Whatever doesn't matter. He climbs the ladder and ends up as a star. He's then paired with Lena Lamont, the kind of major female star of the age, who's obsessed with him and thinks that she's in love with him because she's read it in the fan magazines. So there's sort of these un- these incredible jokes in it about the kind of the the falseness of Hollywood, the yeah. artifice. The film itself is a movie about you should not trust anything you see on screen. It's all fake. All the relationships between the stars, the set behind them, Mm -hmm. the cars they're driving are fake. The songs aren't real. Nothing is real. Stop putting so much stock in this as you know stop caring so much about this thing yes and by the end of the movie of course you care you deeply <laughs> care you're obsessed with gene kelly you want them to get together it's debbie reynolds who's playing the star sort of she's young. so
0: young in that film it's she's just 19 19 her first movie. she's just beautiful and wonderful in it And that's the person you fall in love with. You fall in love with her relationship with Gene Kelly. That's Um, right. And she's the girl who in the end looks as if she's being used because she's the voice Mm -hmm. of the star who can't do it. She does that amazing scene. I can't stand it. I
2: can't stand him. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. But uh, but obviously if you know the movie, you know that the irony is that Gene Hagen, who plays Lena Lamont, so Gene Hagen, this wonderful actress with this mm -hmm. gorgeous voice, plays this actress, Lena Lamont, who talks like that from New Jersey. And... (laughs) who has this sort of horrible grating voice not suitable for sound. But Gene Hagen dubs Debbie Reynolds, but Debbie Reynolds is playing a character who's dubbing Gene Hagen's character. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. That's
2: amazing. So so it's this incredible thing where the actress playing the person who can't sing is the one dubbing the actor playing the character who can sing. So, (laughs) you know, Singing in the Rain is this sort of inception-level movie about movies, about movies. Mm. And it's also so interesting as a as a document on the film industry of the 1950s yeah you know this is this is a time when Gene Kelly was a superstar, and m g m was incredibly successful and lucrative, but very soon after it all fell apart, yeah, you know he had maybe five six seven more years of a level fame before his career started to. Fall away, and he mm. he became almost a nostalgia act. Yeah. So this is him at a, uh, sort of at his, at his very enormous peak of, of creativity. You know, he co-directs the movie, he choreographs mm. the movie. He is so innovative. It's an extraordinary. I keep saying extraordinary, but it tr- truly is yeah. jaw-dropping how clever it is. The dance routines are
0: uh, just astonishing. Uh, well, Good Morning is one of the greatest dance routines uh, has ever been done. Uh,
2: it's incredible, and make him laugh. You know, I learned. As a kid, as a teenager, almost, I learned to do the somersault off the wall that Donald no. O'Connor does. So <laughs> the I, one that I to...
0: where eventually he goes through the set, yes.
2: right, and that's it, right? The rule yeah. of th- the, the the rule of three in comedy, three? you know better than me, but the rule no. of three is that your punchlines on the third beat. Mm-hmm. So you go, you know, one, two, gag, and in make him laugh. Donald O'Connor does this amazing slapstick routine. That was written for it was choreographed for him by Gene Kelly because Gene Kelly knew Donald O'Connor was a hoofer. He knew mm. that he was a vaudeville comedian who had been in a in a family kind of traveling act, you know, doing slapstick and knockabout. And Gene Kelly was like, Well, let's let's use it. Let's. Yeah. and that's an amazing you know, Gene Kelly was a hard, difficult man, apparently. He was a taskmaster, he had no sense of humor, he was sort of quite you know, fierce.
0: Fred Astaire apparently as well. Yeah, maybe that's where people get to that sort of height through those yeah. for that maybe determination. You're, maybe you're
2: right, but he, you know, for a man who was renowned for his comedies, Gene Kelly apparently didn't have a sense of humour at all, and had to be sort <laughs> of told he had to be told how to be funny. But he was he was wise enough to say, well, look, I'm not going to take all the limelight. Let's give set pieces to other people too. Mm. So you've got this incredible array of acting talent doing great gags. Lena Lamont is a very funny role. You know, she's, she gets loads of jokes in it. And Donald O'Connor gets so many gags and then gets this amazing slapstick number, make him laugh, where he does the somersault off the wall. So he runs mm. up one wall, does a backflip, runs up the other wall, does a backflip, runs up the third wall, goes through the wall. Yep. And and it's an amazing thing because it's
0: all in one take. Uh, so much of that song is, yeah. There's hardly any, a cut in it. And yeah. he, he, he never gets out of breath. It's a, it's astonishing. He's so fit. I mean, that make him laugh, yeah. laugh, somersault, make him laugh, somersault, make him laugh, smash. Smash, yeah. It's perfect.
2: I think he was hospitalised doing it, but I think it's, um, <laughs> I mean, because it's, it's, you know, there's no stunt... Performer there. He's just, he's hes throwing himself into the floor, into the walls. You know, he's hes wrestling with a dummy. You know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of an amazing piece of physical comedy. So the reason I want to put it in a time capsule is because I think it summarises a huge amount of our cultural legacy and our, uh, the way we engage with art and popular movies and popular culture. It satirises it and it also represents it. Mm. So it's, it's this sort of... Uh, it's a kind of prismatic movie. You can look at it from different lenses, you know, different angles, and the light shines through it at a different angle. And you sort of go, "Oh, oh, hang on, is it a satire? No, it's not a satire. Is it? Is it telling it straight? No, it's not. No, it is a satire. It's a satire. No, hang on a minute. No, that that bit's straight. So there's this sort of there's a cynicism to its creation. You know, jukebox musical makes some money. There's this incredible execution of quality where it is hands down the best musical ever made. You know, And arguably the best movie ever made. It's often in the top sort of five best ever movies. Mm. But it's commenting on Hollywood of the 1920s, but at the same time it's clearly commenting on Hollywood of the 50s. Yeah. And in so doing, what you're actually seeing is in many ways a really subtle and, and thoughtful analysis of where we've ended up now with popular culture and fan culture and celebrity culture and the dynamics of what's called parasocial intimacy where fans think they know the stars. Mm. But it's a one-way conversation. It's a one-way relationship. You know, we know everything about our favourite actors and our favourite sports people and our favourite politicians, and they don't even know our name. Yeah. And they're sort of imbalance. And so I wrote a book about oh, four years ago, probably, called Dead Famous, about the history of celebrity culture. And, yeah, while writing it, I just realised that singing in the rain is, is so much better than it has any right to be. Hmm. But it's also so perceptive on where we've got to now in 2024, it's already spotting so many of the the rhythms of fan campaigns, of cancellation, of marketing, of stars believing their own hype, of studios cynically moving in one direction because all the others are, that mm. sort of, you know, that kind of herd mentality. Yeah. It, it's very, very perceptive on all sorts of really cute, clever little quirks that you, when you start to notice them, you start to see them in Singing in the Rain. Mm. So although it feels quite dated because it's a 1952 movie about the 1920s about 1926 actually i think it's incredibly forward thinking so i think if you pop it in a in a time capsule and come back i suspect it will still feel relevant mm i hope
0: yeah strangely enough i watched it again quite recently oh did you just because i i like you love it and i realize i hadn't seen it for many years and i was astonished at how brilliant it is that every moment of it is overwhelmingly skillful yeah. and That centerpiece, which strangely is the thing that almost the one thing you haven't spoken about, that centerpiece of him dancing in the rain. You're right. Yeah. It's just really beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. And obviously, it is iconic.
2: You know, we use the word iconic now to I mean, these days, we talk about iconic sandwiches. And I, you know, we, we, we use it in such a sort of lazy, like, what an iconic performance, you know, like, mm, you know. as a historian, I tend to get a bit like, well, icons are quite a specific form of Byzantine art. But still, um, I think singing in the rain, the dance routine is iconic. I think it actually is such a specifically well-beloved, but also frequently mentioned or referred to piece of dance, that you see it in adverts, you see it in other movies, you see mm. it in uh, parody, in, in love letters. It's this incredible set piece where a man in love doesn't mind that it's raining. It's a really simple metaphor. Mm. You know, it's, in, it's not complicated. He's in love, it's raining, he doesn't need his umbrella. You know, he's splashing yeah. about in the puddles because he's like a big kid but the way they light it, the way they film it, the way he choreographs it. And of course, he, he danced it with a sort of incredibly terrifying fever. You know, I think he was, again, he was hospitalized, I think, soon after with hypothermia or pneumonia or something. that. And he was really poorly. But it's just this effortlessly light, playful thing. And yeah, my, my little girl, you know, when she was two, immediately took to it. Just mm. automatically saw it once and was, you know went off to fetch her little umbrella and come back and started doing it. And you just sort of, I don't think you can generate that sort of beauty easily. And that's why I mean, when I say that Singing the Rain should not work, what I mean by that is that when you look at the cast and the crew, it is incredibly talented people in every department. So it's not like they've hired a bunch of hacks but it shouldn't have the resonance and the elegance. And the, as you say, the, the romance at the heart of it works. Mm. You do feel, you come out feeling euphoric, but also loved up and, and whatever. <laughs> but you've also giggled your ass off for an hour yeah. and a half because yeah. there's so many gags in it. So it's just, it's, it's, so ex- it's so incredible in its execution. And the only film that comes close for me in terms of the should not work is a masterpiece for me, is the Lego movie, which I realise is a very different... <laughs> but the Lego movie should not work. It is a sort of, you know, a lazy tie-in by a toy company saying, oh, we've got this brand, can you do something with it? Yeah, okay, we'll do a movie, I guess. And you end up with one of the sort of funniest, most inventive, brilliantly animated, brilliantly scripted, brilliantly voice-acted masterpieces of modern cinema. Right.
0: I've not seen that. I'll have to it's have so, a look. It's so. It's so like my People have said to me that the Mario Brothers film recently yeah, it's, is same. Yeah. It's great. Yeah.
2: Really funny, yeah.
0: But then I saw Wonka the other night, and uh, with lots of people you'll know in it. Yeah, yeah and, I loved Wonka. Uh, it's yeah. just fantastic. It's gorgeous. It, Simon Farnaby has this ability to somehow be very straightforward and hardly do anything but really tug at your heartstrings.
2: Yeah, there's something about... I mean, obviously that whole gang, you know, I had the incredible privilege of working them with him for five years on Horrible Histories. And actually, I hadn't really met Simon. He's quite quiet, he's quite shy, he's mm-hmm. a lovely guy, but he's, he's not the big clown that you might assume he is because he's often playing the kind of manic, slightly batty one on, on screen. But in, in reality, he's, he's actually quite, you know, he's quite de- demure and peaceful and polite and, and sort of quite, you know, hello. Mm. Um, but the sort of first time I properly had to chat with him or at least work with him was, uh, we were both dressed in chain mail <laughs> and he was William the Conqueror and I was this dancing squire <laughs> and we had to do a sort of dance routine, improvise a dance routine. We didn't have any choreographer. We just had to improvise a dance routine for Horrible Histories, for this big song where we did all the kings and queens of England in a row from 1066 through to Queen Elizabeth. And it's one of our most famous songs. Mm. It's very long. And if you watch the thing closely, you can see me and <laughs> me and William the Conqueror, me and Simon Farnaby, doing this sort of ridiculous dance routine that we'd had to improvise ourselves. And it's sort of the first time I'd really met him properly and this was Brilliant. quite awkward to be like, hello, I'm Greg, I'm the historian. Um, <laughs> shall we try some sort of elbows out, knock knee, kind of cockney dancing? How about, you know, if we link arms and, and mm-hmm. do-si-do? I mean, it, yeah, it's quite strange. But to watch Paddington, Paddington 2, I mean, Paddington 2 is, yeah. I mean, if you made me fight it out, I'd probably say Singing in the Rain is my favourite movie of all time, but Paddington 2 might be up there.
0: Uh, and They've all rediscovered the skill of Hugh Grant. That's the great yes, thing. Yes,
2: but also Hugh Grant as the kind of baddie. He's so good. He's yeah. so good yeah. as the baddie, isn't he? He's such a he's such a delightful grump.
0: They're the same as the Umpalumpa. He's brilliant in it. He steals yeah. the film. I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a wonder It's a lovely, lovely movie. Yeah. and it should have got more BAFTA awards or BAFTA yeah. the nominations but yeah the no, Lego Movie check it out Mike Because I, I
0: will do but I'm also going to I'm going to waste some time <laughs> as people say but it's not wasted I'm going to watch it again I'm going to watch Singing in the Rain and just indulge myself with the skill of it and the beauty of it good thank you very much that's a fantastic thing that's number one Greg that is number one yeah what's number two Right, it's ad break time, so we'll be back after the ads that may or may not play in this gap. Which will be a completely different thing, of course, depending on who's listening. Strange things, podcasts, aren't they? See you in a bit, or maybe even less than that. A bite.
1: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Welcome back. How was your individual ad break? Fun, I hope. Still, let's get back to Greg Jenner and see what else will come up as he puts his things into a time capsule. Well, number two... Is quite different, really.
2: Uh, number two, the concept of Twitter when it was good.
0: Ah, uh, happy days. Can I put that? Can I you put can. that in? You can indeed. Yeah. It's a
2: sort of an effusively delightful but mysterious thing. Twitter because <laughs> as as uh, the reason I'm putting it in is Elon Musk has made it terrible, and I can't stand that man. But also, it's been so important for my career. Mm-hmm. But it's also been so important for me, just as a person individually, as a you know someone in the world. I think Twitter is amazing when it works uh, as a place for bringing people together with like-minded perspective or in the same community. Mm. It's also an incredible place when a story breaks, you know, a political story or a slightly unusual news story, and you just see these extraordinarily quick-witted. People react just in, in the instant with gags and puns and memes. Within five minutes, someone has knocked up a Photoshop of a, you know, of a, of a wanted poster or <laughs> they found a way to subvert whatever has been put out. And what I love about Twitter, or what I loved about Twitter, now it's been sort of tarnished and damaged, was this sort of sense that you were part of something. It was a kind of organic crowd, Mm-hmm. And that we 'd all gathered there twitter 's quite self selecting yeah you know, you, but very much a crowd, not a mob well, it can be a mob, and it could mm. be a mob i mean it 's more and more becoming
0: a mob that 's the problem, I think yeah
2: and and that 's always a problem isn 't it any mm. any place where people gather can become a mob, and yeah, I mean there are always going to be places i 'm a white guy i 'm a white middle class guy i 'm a you know i, I don 't get one percent of the abuse that people of color women trans people mm-hmm. are, Gay people get, you know, I, Muslims, Jews, yeah. you know, I'm very, very privileged. So I have always had a nice time on Twitter, even when it's tough. I'm really aware of that. And I've got lots of friends for whom Twitter is not pleasurable. So I guess what I'm saying when I say I want to put the, the concept of Twitter when it's good in what I mean by that is what Twitter could be. Mm. Not necessarily what it is or what it was, but r- rather on the good days where you saw everyone... Just sort of, they kind of just were thrilled by the awareness that we were all there together, just going, "Wow, have you heard this thing?" You know, and <laughs> everyone's doing gags, and everyone's doing punchlines, and everyone's doing memes and jokes, but also people are sort of throwing in, you know, they're finding videos from twenty-five years ago and going, "It reminds me of this thing," and you go, "Oh, yeah, I remember that," mm. and that that ability, I think, just for strangers to connect over. Ideas—that's the thing that no other social app or platform can do. Instagram can't do ideas. No. Facebook is dreadful at ideas because it's just so static and so close. You know, it's it's little comments underneath. Mm -hmm. But Twitter was an amazing engine for getting people to argue and sometimes those arguments become incredibly heated and and nasty and horrible and trolling and I completely understand that and that's why some people hated Twitter and didn't want to be on it but it also was this amazing place for me as a historian to, I mean I follow 10,000 people on Twitter I'm still on there Mm. I'm not calling it it's called X now but only losers call it X I'm calling it
0: Twitter Uh, Always with a brackets Twitter next to it Always It's a complete failure calling it X Totally, totally
2: But I followed 10,000 people on there, probably about 7,000 of whom are historians, I reckon. Mm. And I could get any question answered in half an hour. Anything. Anything at all. You know, what kind of hats do people wear in Japan in the 1240s? I can get that answered in the afternoon. And it's just, uh, what an amazing network. What an extraordinary thing that you could spend your whole life desperately, you know, when I was, you know, I'm 41. So when I was young, if you wanted to know something, you had to look it up in an encyclopedia. Mm Mm-hmm. And then along came the internet, and suddenly you could maybe look it up on an online encyclopedia. Okay, great. And then Wikipedia, and you're like, oh, this is good. But Twitter, I could literally talk to the expert who wrote the Wikipedia article. Or, wrote, you know, like, I could get anything answered. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, working on Horrible Histories, where I was, the, you know, I was the only guy doing the history research for the first five series. You know, I was in charge of the history of the world. I could get anything answered. So if I, <laughs> if I didn't know if something was true or not, I'd just ask an expert. Yeah. Hi. Sorry, I'm working horrible histories. Would you mind? And they'd be like, "Yeah, no worries. Here, here, here it is." And it just was amazing for that. But also, it was you know, I grew as a person. I got better as a person because I read other people's experiences and I became more aware of what it was like to not be me mm-hmm. because I was living in a little bubble. I was a little, you know, I was working in TV. I was a you know, grammar school educated white guy who had very limited life experiences and just to be able to read the experiences of other people in the same country or from different countries of different backgrounds, different heritages,
0: different training, different interests, different gender, class, Mm. all of that. And sometimes it's useful to see the bias in other people. Actually, I think sometimes when you see the vitriol, it's important to know that it's there and to wonder where it came from, I think.
2: Yes, and you can see people get radicalised and you can see people lose their minds and become monomaniacal and obsessed Mm. And that's really sad sometimes, but also you know grimly fascinating, I think to see someone start from a position of being you know fairly broadly open minded and then they get increasingly more and more dogged and and start to lose perspective and sometimes they're on the right side they're on the right you know they're chasing the right cause, but mm. they there is a sort of embattled nature to twitter that yeah. people, it's It's hard to be on Twitter a long time and not be at war constantly i'm very lucky that i've never really had that experience because i'm just not wired that way i'm very Uncombative. I'm a sort of, te- well, terrible fence-sitter is probably the sort of polite way, you know. I, but I, it's not a it's not a position of cowardice. I, I'm just naturally very um,
0: woolly. I'm, I'm just very I'm floaty, floppy, just like, well, let's all just be friends. And I suppose, really, you sort of go, that's what history would have taught you. And the mm. study of history is, I can tell you this is a fact, and next year I'll tell you that it's not a fact.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's very true. And that's one of the things that's funny about Twitter is people, the certainty. There's so many people who are certain on Twitter, whereas mm-hmm. I spend my life realising, oh, it's hard to be certain about anything. But yeah, I think I, I want to put the concept of good Twitter into the time capsule because I think for, for a little while it was this, d- definitely not a utopia, definitely not a kind of halcyon, it wasn't a kind of academia, ancient Greek meeting of minds philosophy <laughs> arena. But it was a place where every day something would make me laugh. Every day, something would change my mind. Mm. Every day, I would learn a new thing. Every day, I would make a new friend. And that's an amazing thing, right? To mm-hmm. to have a place, you know, a, a place you don't have to pay to, and you know, it's free, it doesn't cost me a thing. To just go there and every day to have your mind changed and to maybe, yeah, you know, I've got really good friends who I've met at, on Twitter. And I say, yeah. when I say really good friends, I mean, came to my wedding, I regularly hang out, you know, call them up on the phone and say, how are you doing, friends? And yeah, I met them through Twitter. That's how we first met. And what I loved about Twitter, what I found extraordinary about it is I've I've met easily, I've met hundreds and hundreds of people, i probably into the thousands now of people I've met through Twitter and then met them in real life. They're always exactly as I assume they will be. Yeah, yeah. They're never a surprise. (laughs) They're never a shock. It's never like, oh, I thought you'd be kinder or less. They're always exactly that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I find interesting about Twitter is that, yes, Twitter can be a nasty, horrible, squatted place of infighting and and brutality and closed-mindedness. It absolutely can. But you can also get a sense of someone on Twitter. It's quite hard to mask who you really are. Mm -hmm. And I think when people meet me, they often go, oh, you're shorter than I thought. I'm like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) I am am a lot shorter, uh, skinnier. I I sort of look like a human weasel. Um, (laughs) But they often meet me and go oh yeah, I know you from Twitter. And what they mean by that, I think, is they know me from Twitter. It's mm-hmm. not that they know me off Twitter. They, they've already got a sense of my personality off yeah. Twitter. You know, I'm an idiot. I do puns and jokes. I tend to react to serious things in a sort of, you know, slightly flippant way sometimes as a coping mechanism. <laughs> but also I have an interest in all sorts of things. I'm, I think if you're a historian, it helps to be interested in everything. And so I take an interest in as much as I can. And if I'm not interested in something, I'll sometimes try and figure out, well, why aren't I interested? Why, mm. should, should I, maybe I should be. And I'll try and convince myself to be interested. So I'll, I'll give most things at least two two three attempts before I go, no, nah, no, it's not for me. Yeah. And Twitter was very good at that because every day I'd be exposed to new things. And sometimes I'd look at them and go, what's this? I've never heard of this. <laughs> and so, you know, and so you're learning new words, you're learning new phrases, you're learning new ideas, being challenged, being mm. pushed.
0: I think it's lovely that you can, on Twitter, occasionally somebody will say something aggressive or nasty towards you. And you can very quickly divert that by saying, So I did, I mean, look at my timeline. Do I look like the sort of person who enjoys this sort of conversation? Hmm. And they'll usually write back saying, No, sorry.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I don't think I've ever had a Twitter argument. Maybe I'm not doing it right.
0: <laughs> no. No. It, uh, I mean, in a way, but, that's how it would be perfect if everybody just went, okay, look, you say your thing, and if I disagree with it, I'll just move on.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, there are points of principle where you absolutely vehemently believe in something, and someone is saying something, and you say, "No, I absolutely do not." Dis- you know, I, I fundamentally disagree with you. But there comes a point where you just have to back away because that person's not going to change their mind, or they no. sometimes they're there just to piss you off, sometimes they're there just to rile you up. You know, that's the fun for them. That's what trolling is. Mm-hmm. But I think I've always found Twitter as a place where, I guess, quite early on, I I went in going, "I'm open to what you want to say, and I'll listen, and if you convince me." Well done. And if you don't convince me, I'm not going to turn against you or declare war. I just, you know, there are people on there who are literal fascists. I'm never going to engage with them. Mm. But if there are people in there who I disagree with, I'll read what they say and I'll think about it and I'll ponder it. And I probably won't engage because I don't have time. But sometimes it's helpful to just check in and go, do I still believe what I believe? Uh Is that position... Has my position changed? Has their position changed? No, still where I am. Okay, I'm still. I still fundamentally believe in this, but yeah, I, I think Twitter for me was a place where every day I changed my mind and every mm. day I learned something new, and that to me is an incredible privilege. Mm. And you know, that's that's what university's for. That's what you're meant to go to university to, to go and study and to learn and to learn to be wrong and learn mm. to be right. And Twitter was kind of like that. Now, I I realise that's a very personalised experience for me and I'm really aware that that's not universally shared by most. But
0: No, but let's put it in because it, it would be yeah. nice if the world could see it and go, oh, do you know what? It can be this way. And I also worry that quite soon, Mr Musk will just destroy uh, it in such an enormous way that people will go, I can't do this anymore. And that's yeah. sad. It's, it'd be sad to lose it. You're right. It can be a wonderful place. You can, and it's already so damaged
2: and so many people have gone already which is really sad mm. but but yeah i mean he just he, you see i don't know the prime minister puts out a statement and you just see people immediately respond and you mm. sort of go yeah i think he maybe <laughs> maybe he's not going to win the next election because you could just see people are like
0: this guy can just get in the bin he's you know yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we're
2: not tolerating it anymore
0: that's a nice thing to see yes so let's put that in as a second thing then greg okay wonderful right, number 3
2: number 3 on the list right um, i'm going to put in a song that I adore by a band that I do not adore. Now, <laughs> okay. Now I don't know if this is a sort of strange thing to do, but I couldn't tell you more than five of their songs. If you put a gun to my head, I could probably get to seven. Yeah. But the band is Dire Straits, mm-hmm. and the song is "Sultans of Swing." but it's a live version. So it's Sultan to Swing from the live Alchemy gig. Mm. And this song is really meaningful to me. It's really important to me. And it was kind of transformative in my youth, I think. And what I love about it is I, it's obviously a personal thing. I think it might be the greatest live performance by a musical act of all time. (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's bands I love more. You know, mm-hmm. there's many bands I love more. There are many bands, who, you know, I know the names of the members, for example. Whereas Mark, Mark Knopfler and other people is how I know die Straits. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But this particular live performance is just incredible, and it's such a stupid song. It's a song about <laughs> it's a song about nothing, really. It's a song about some guys who are in a band. So it doesn't, you know, it's not Romeo and Juliet. Another song I do know. It's not a love mm. song. It's not a. It's not a political, you know, cri de guerre. It's no. not a... did
0: you hear it just on the album or were you there?
2: So, no, I was not there. It's before mm-hmm. my time, I think. I don't know when it was recorded. I mean, as I say, I don't know anything about that. <laughs>
0: um Well, I don't blame you. Money for nothing, solvents a Swing. That's about it.
2: I think that yeah. oh God, there must be another song. Brothers in, Brothers in Arms. That's a song, isn't it?
0: Brothers in Arms,
2: yeah. Okay, all right. Um I think I think it was my dad's LP, but I was asking I, I asked him about them recently. I, I said to him Oh, do you remember when you played that Sons of Swing track all the time? And he was mm. like, oh, that's not my LP. I was given it by someone. And so I just sort of played it for a bit. And so in my head, in my sort of memories, it's like my father's favourite album. <laughs> and he's like, no, I borrowed it for like a week or something and uh, yeah, just sort of just put it on for a bit.
0: Because I had a limited amount of time to listen.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and he just, I think maybe some people just handed it, oh, I can't remember who it was. They just went, have a listen to that, what do you reckon? And so in my head I've sort of turned it into this sort of edifice of my childhood, this sort oh, right, of you yeah. know, kind of like like a tablet on a mountain of Moses saying, Behold, but of course that is
0: what music is. I mean, it yeah. is not just the music, it is mm. where you heard it, who yeah. you were with, what yeah. it reminds you of.
2: Yes, exactly. It's, of course, music is memories, isn't it? Mm. It's it's the it's the power of nostalgia and the sense memory and and of who you were which is why sometimes you go back and listen to music from your youth and you can be transported back and it's very Proustian. And sometimes you're not transported at all because you've changed mm-hmm. and the music hasn't changed and you're like,
0: oh, no. Oh. Uh, that, <laughs> that happened to me just last night, Greg. Oh, really? really? Yeah, I, How... I heard while sitting in an audience, the music was playing. On came Don't Go Breaking My Heart, mm-hmm. on John Kiki D, And as a young man, I know exactly where that takes me, that song. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of something very powerful. But actually I listened to it for the first time in a long time and thought, what a right. dreadful song.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Poor Elton. Um, yeah, I I don't think I've had that level of Voltfast no. change. But what's interesting is I, I went back and I listened to the Salt and Swing live version maybe a year ago. Mm. Just to check. I was like, is it as good as I remember? It's better than I remember. Right. And The reason I've chosen it is that I am not a musician. But when I was 13, my brother, my younger brother, who knows your son, Mm -hmm. he started doing um, classical guitar lessons at school. And he's five years younger than me. So I was 13, he was eight. And he sort of brought a guitar into the house. And I had never had a musical instrument in the house. My parents are not musically trained. You know, they like music, but only as, you know, people who listen to music. Mm. I grew up on the Beatles and, and I grew up on my parents' music. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't buy my own CD till I was 14, probably. So I totally grew up on like 60s and 70s rock, like rock and roll, the Beatles and stuff like that. And Seb brought a classical guitar into the house. And I went, huh. Mm. This, this is something I'm interested in. I, just, I picked it up and started fiddling about. And he was learning classical guitar. That's not what I was going to learn. I was going to try and teach myself rock guitar, you know, the music mm. I like. Mm. Uh, and I just remember my dad put on Dire Straits, Sultans a Swing, the album that I thought he was obsessed with and clearly wasn't obsessed <laughs> with at all. He clearly, he clearly wasn't even that bothered, but he just pop, popped it on. And I just remember being electrified, but ah. like transfixed. Mm -hmm. astonished by this particular piece of music. I don't remember any of the other songs. I could not tell you what the other songs are on the album. I'm guessing Brothers in Arms and "Romeo and Juliet is probably on there. But all I know is that Songs of Swing, the live version, 10 minutes, is on there. And it's got this feral, magnetic, hypnotic energy to it. The drummer has clearly taken an awful lot of cocaine <laughs> like he's <is> going <laughs> he is drumming so hard and so fast and so big like it's he's doing huge fills massive cymbal crashes <laughs> it, like the song on the album the recorded one is sort of quite gentle it's it's mm. got a groove to it it's sort of you know it's
0: it's hip it it, it, it sort of goes it's almost a country feel to some of it it's
2: though. almost it's almost a sort of twang yeah, yeah you're right there is a sort of not quite jazzy but country is kind of the vibe the live version is, he's, I mean, I don't know, yeah, I don't know what he's taken, but he's, he's obviously <laughs> had a good time,
0: because he's going for it. And that constantly. is your sort of music, isn't it? Now, I did read, you'd like... i mean, to heavy metal. Yeah, heavy metal, heavy yeah. metal. And a band like Thrice, I heard. Yeah,
2: so I, yeah, I love the band Thrice, I love mm. the band Machine Head, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up on Metallica, <laughs> you know, I like other bands, you know, the Radiohead and all sorts of things like that, but I like loud, heavy guitar music. Sultans and Swing was the first time... I'd heard rock before, I'd heard Led Zeppelin and all sorts of things, but that was the first time I heard a live band who were so in sync that they dragged the audience with them. Mm. And it's a sort it's a form of mesmerism. Like there's this incredible energy in the room. You can, the the way they mic'd up, they sound brilliant. They sound absolutely brilliant. All the instruments sound incredible. It's beautifully live mixed. Mark Knopfler sounds great, but he's got this very sort of casual, like, hey, I'm lovely. He ch- sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. of talks things, talk doesn't he? He does, yeah. Which is quite, it's quite interesting because it feels quite conversational. But you can hear the audience. You can hear them whooping and clapping and they're in perfect time with the band, which is so rare because audiences usually are rubbish. <laughs> Normally audiences are way out and someone's at the back clapping at the wrong time. This audience, clearly Dire this audience are, are musos, because they're, mm-hmm. all, they're all in perfect time. But the band, <laughs> they've got this sort of section in the middle where the band slows right down and plays the refrain slow and quiet. Like that. And it just sort of slow and slow and slow but it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and suddenly there's a keyboard there and then suddenly the bass kicks in and then and Suddenly, the other oh, guitar kicks in, and then suddenly, and then Mark Knopfler's doing this ludicrous solo that I still to this day cannot play. And I just remember being hypnotized by it and ju- you know, staring at my brother's little classical guitar, going, How, how do you make those sounds? Mm. But also, how do you make those sounds in a way that makes me feel like this? Because when I make the sounds, I don't feel like that. It's, it's just <laughs> sound, it's you know, I'm not, I don't feel anything. Uh, I just remember being transported into a different you know spine tingling you know down the spine sort of level of chills of like this feels more than music this feels like a spell Mm. this feels like i've been hypnotized or i've been bewitched by a band at the absolute pinnacle of their powers and it's weird because i still know nothing about dire straits and i couldn't tell you anything else about them but that one song i just think it's incredible
0: i wonder how often they achieve that in their careers
2: I th- I suspect it might be the best they've ever played mm-hmm. because I think I feel like that album. I tweeted about it a year ago or so, and people were like, "Oh my god, yeah, that album is <laughs> that's that's the one." And I was like, "Okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is them at the, the absolute apogee of their skills." Yeah, you know, I know they're quite ruxious as a band. They they fall out a fair bit, and I don't know if they are still together. But that one song is ten minutes of absolute joy. But also going back to it, I realised. That song was so important to me because it inspired me to pick up a guitar and start teaching myself. I've never had a lesson in my life, but I taught myself guitar. And I then joined a band with mates at school and I was cripplingly shy. I was incredibly shy. I would, you know, could not talk to strangers, was absolutely terrified of public speaking. And by joining a band, I had to then perform, you know, mm. first in front of your mates. Then, in, you know, you, when you write, you know, I was writing songs. So you write a song, you've got to show your mates. Yeah, That's performing. And then they're like, yeah, that's quite good. All right, we'll play that. Then you've got to perform in front of strangers. Terrifying. Mm. Then I ended up as the front man because our singer left and they were like, all right, Greg, you do it. And I was like, oh God. All right. <laughs> so suddenly you know, I'd gone from being someone who could not, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't pick up a phone. I was so scared. Suddenly I was fronting a band. And it was so important to my development. There's absolutely no way in hell that I end up in this career if I don't pick up a guitar at 13, because the guitar was was my gateway into having to learn to be a part of a gang, part of a group, a band, but also learning to perform, learning to tell stories. Mm. You know, when you write a song, you're telling a story and you have to learn structure. You know where does the song start? How does it end? Where are the high pits? Where, where where are the kind of refrains, the choruses, the bits that are euphoric? Where are the bits that are sort of slow down? You know, when you write a book, you realise you're writing a song. Mm. the The easy thing when you're writing a book is just to start at the beginning and just start writing, but it doesn't work. What you're writing is a, is a is something that's got a rhythm to it, and it's yeah. got to have it's going to have peaks and troughs, and it's going to have exciting bits and slowed down bits. And I suddenly found myself quite recently saying, I learned to do podcasts, I learned to write books by listening to Die straits
0: <laughs>
2: Because of that ten minutes of, of glorious audio where they slow it down and they bring the audience with them and then they gradually speed it up and they bring the audience with them and then they suddenly they're at their absolute pomp and the audience is absolutely in the moment with them and everyone is unified and going, This isn't a best night of our lives. That that's storytelling. Yeah, and you can you can apply that to anything. You can apply that to filmmaking, podcast, salesman. You know, you you selling a car, selling a house, whatever. If you're telling a story, you have to modulate and introduce ideas, and then re- reinforce them, and then subvert them, and surprise, and then finish mm-hmm. on a high note. I learned it from Dire Straits,
0: right? So. <laughs> Well, we'll try and finish on a high note. But uh, in the meantime, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And it's a wonderful thing. And also that thing of performing and suddenly realising some people are going to like it, some people aren't. Yeah. But actually, it doesn't hurt me particularly if they don't. I'm all right. I'm going to have a go. And, and learning that confidence through all that, that's absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, let's put Sultans of Swing. By Dire Straits, I never thought they would go in, but in they go. <laughs> I don't think they, they're not cool anymore, are they? They're not cool, but no, I, but you know, not really. And,
2: and, as, and also, as a fan of heavy metal, saying die straight, thats definitely <laughs> not cool. You've absolutely blown it. <laughs> I have. I've shredded all of my street cred, um, but I didn't want to lie about it. It's, it's no. that's for me is the um, that's the moment.
0: Fantastic. So we've got two left. We've got one good one and <laughs> one we want to get rid of. Okay, you so choose. The good one, this is a very
2: cheap piece of technology. I have some very, very crap little headphones that are made by the company JVC. They're called JVC Marshmallows. They cost Mm. £8.99. They are really bad audio quality, but they're really, really squishy and (laughs) soft, and they fit in my ear perfectly when I sleep. Uh And the reason I've gone for them is because I'm a chronic insomniac, and I have been since 14 uh, since Dire Straits, clearly. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I had chronic insomnia my whole life and it was really, really bad in my 20s and I'd often go three days without sleep, which was wow. you know, maddening and, and very difficult trying to hold down a job, a particular mm. job I was doing, this incredibly high-level, very, very difficult show, Horrible Histories, where I was the only historian. So having to be incredibly precise about facts and figures and, and being totally sleep-deprived for days on end and that was massively debilitating and life-changingly bad. And in my late twenties it, it got so bad I was, you know, on the verge of of taking my own life, to be honest. I was very, very ill. Um <clears throat> and the thing that sort of saved me was podcasts because I can't switch my brain off at night. I just can't disengage it. I can't um I can't put pause on ideas. They just Bounce around my head and sleep for me was just this. I hated it. I hated going to bed because it was so terrifying, so daunting because I knew I wouldn't get any rest and I knew my brain wouldn't let me relax. And, um, I, I grew to fear it and loathe it, and it became mm. it became almost a punishment. Like going to bed became like a jail sentence, uh, which is you know really difficult when you're in a relationship with someone and you're <laughs> they're like, should we go to bed? It's late, you know. Let's let's go sleep. And I'd I'd be like, no, 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 I I, I can't. I, I absolutely can't. I was just, I was scared of sleeping, wow. um, because I wasn't sleeping. You know, ironically mm. enough. Yes. Um, and then podcasts started to come out about. About 10 or 11 years ago, they started to go a little bit mainstream and I started to come across them a bit. And I, I suddenly realized this was the key. This was the secret. I, you know, I don't respond to meditation or hypnosis and mindfulness. It doesn't work for me at all. I've tried and I, I can't. The thoughts out, outwin the, kind of, the lack of thoughts. They, yeah. they, you know, they're much more muscular.
0: Think about this one thing. No, I can't. I've got no, this of No, I can't. Other ones. can't. Yeah.
2: Sorry. Yeah. But what I can do is tune myself into someone else's thoughts and let them take me somewhere else. Right. And so what I found is that by listening to people speaking quietly for about three hours, I would start to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And so those podcasts were speech podcasts, often politics and um, philosophy, cell biology, um, (laughs) astrophysics, uh, engineering, stuff I don't know much about. Mm Mm-hmm. And by choosing those sorts of things, either I'm learning something new because I can't sleep and so, okay, I'm spending three hours learning about cell biology. Great. Or I just go, I don't know anything about cell biology. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> um, so either way, it worked out. Either way, no. I, was either, I was either learning something new or I was drifting off. And the thing that made that possible were these very, very cheap, crap, little squishy headphones that could fit in my ear.
0: And never fall out.
2: Never fall out. No. And they are not uncomfortable at all. You can sleep on them. So Mm -hmm. head on the pillow with the earpiece in and you don't feel it. There's no discomfort. And I wake up every morning with their headphones still in. I only have one in just in case my daughter cries and I have to sort of run to her, but one's enough. Mm. So very low volume, very low speaking voices. I can't do comedy shows because there's too much laughter and too much energy. What I want is, ideally what you want is three people discussing, you know, uh, the Republican primaries or (laughs) someone trying to explain the concept of... um, of the universe you know the physics of it and that is what works for me so these super duper cheap crappy little headphones marshmallow jpcs uh life-changing for me possibly life-saving
0: yeah so brilliant because it is one of those things uh, people may disregard it but actually like pain the lack of sleep can eventually drive you to distraction to the point where as you say you feel what's the point
2: yeah, I mean it's a torture. I mean, li- mm. literally, this is what horrifically was done to people in Guantanamo or wherever CIA black what are they call black uh, sites, black. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Keeping people awake against their will is a form of torture. It mm. is it is horrific, and the consequences are really interesting. For me, I I tend to get giggly, huh. so in some ways it's quite helpful. In my twenties, I was working on a comedy show. And I was hysterical most of the time, <laughs> and I, I mean that literally. I mean, I was I was having fun, but I was like, I was in a completely
0: almost manic.
2: Almost manic states, um, <laughs> which meant that I was very receptive to comedy ideas. I was very, it's like being in an improv group and being very yes and, mm. except you're yes and yourself, you know, sort of slightly <laughs> manic yeah, energy. But obviously, yeah, it, it, over time it just was devastating and, mm. and very, very hard to explain to people, very hard to explain to my partner, very hard to explain to my family. They're like, just get to sleep. It's like, I can't, I can't, my, I cannot get to sleep. I've tried everything, hot baths, warm baths, cold baths, exercise, not exercise. You know, I've tried all the herbal remedies, everything like that, you know, and it's just it's, it's just my condition. I'm just, this is who I am, and mm-hmm. it's still kind of that way. I still go to bed at 2 a.m. every night, and any earlier than that is a real roll the dice.
0: Wow. I remember the first time somebody, on Twitter, interestingly enough, as we go mm. full circle in these things, <laughs> somebody <laughs> tweeted me to say, thanks very much for your podcast. I always go to sleep to it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, I thought I wrote back saying, oh, thanks very much. And they went, no, no, it's lovely. It really relaxes me.
2: No, we get a lot of that on You're Dead to Me. And when people say, I, I go to sleep with your voice in my ears, I'm like, mm-hmm. that is, for me, that is such a beautiful thing to hear. Well, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't listen to our show because it's a comedy show. And so it, for me, it would not work but I'm so grateful that it has a place for other people and that I was able to make a show that has meaning because for me, many people's shows have meaning, you know, and Mm -hmm. to be part of that continuum, part of that tradition and to be able to be the voice in someone's ear, it's an incredible privilege. It's so, you know, that's what's lovely about podcasting. That's why I enjoy about your show is, you know, it's lovely to hear people and to listen and to, to just focus on something that isn't your own thoughts. Mm. and podcasting is very intimate. It's different to radio. Radio's on. Radio's always on. You know, you mm. turn on the radio, something's happening. Turn off the radio, it's gone. But podcast, you choose. You opt in. You select it. This is what I want right now. This is the volume level. I'll skip that bit. Fast forward. Listen on 1.5 speed. You mm-hmm. know, it, it. you get to have... Autonomy over it, yeah. even when you're listening to someone else's ideas or something that's heavily scripted, or you know you're not in control, but actually you are in control. And um, for me, podcasting has become my career, but actually in some ways it saved my life, mm. which is
0: fabulous. Yeah, fabulous. What? Well, yeah. yeah. We've all got a set of headphones like that, actually, yeah. the ones that we bought in a station or we, we, oh, I haven't got any headphones. And then yeah. to discover these are the perfect headphones. Yeah. How fabulous. Yeah. How lovely for you. <laughs> That's a gorgeous thing to put in. Thanks, Greg. Well, thank you. I'm delighted that you've found a solution as well.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I am too. And uh, I, I go through them one set per year because when you sleep on them, you tend to rip them. The body weight tends to sort of pull the little socket out from the actual wire. Yes. So they, they, they are a sort of ongoing expense, but I think I can just about afford eight ninety nine a year. <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> Fantastic. So sadly, just one thing that you want to get rid of, but maybe this is a good thing. We can clear this from your life. I struggled then.
2: I mean, I really struggled on this one because... To a certain extent, everything has contributed to who I am and I don't really want to erase memories or, well, I, I, to be honest, the sleeplessness means that actually I do have a lot of erased memories. I have real struggles remembering where I was for several years of my life, right. which is weird because I have a really good memory as a historian, I can do facts and figures and dates and names from all over the world quite yes. easily. I read you cuff.
0: sat in a room with Stephen Fry with him throwing dates at you. Now that's yeah. terrifying. Terrifying. That was,
2: that was really daunting. That was in Horrible Histories so where we did the TV show spin-off for, for BBC, for the kind of grown-up BBC audience, mm. and Stephen became our rat, you know, and Stephen's an incredible man. And the clapperboard was throwing out random dates. Like, you know, when you, you put the clapperboard scene 12, take six, whatever, so 1206, uh, right, and be yeah. like... And he'd be like, Greg, what happened in 12.06? And I'd be like, oh, God. (laughs) So he was doing that all day. That is something I can do. But I couldn't tell you where I was in 2007. Right. So, I mean, I I could probably figure it out. But off the top of my head... I don't know where, uh, yeah.
0: that's sleep deprivation for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, Keith Richards has the same, but his was mostly drugs, I think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sex and drugs and rock and roll, whereas mine was mostly just uh, complete insomnia (laughs) crisis. So the thing that is difficult for me, I suppose, to do is I don't want to throw away more of my life because I've already lost quite a lot of it.
0: Right. Now, I understand this. My wife has a period where she was studying for a PhD in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And because she was studying so hard and so intensively on this thing... That's what she remembers from that time. She doesn't remember anything else that happened. Oh. She, uh, in a way, her brain has shoved it so far to the back to make room for all this stuff she had to put yeah. in. I think that does happen. That's a Homer
2: Simpson joke, isn't it? The, the, I, <laughs> when you learn something new and you forget something else, like it yes. automatically <laughs> it's like a one-in-one-out policy in a nightclub. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be really, really lazy here and I'm just going to pick an item of clothing that looking back I feel was not a good choice uh, if in terms of aesthetic fashion taste. It's a, this is not a, a well-thought-through answer, but I'm just going to no, go, I, you know No, this what?
0: doesn't have to be life-changing. This uh, okay. is only,
2: right. only your life-changing. <laughs> so when I was at university, when I was trying to figure out who I was, you know, as a person, whatever, I was obviously listening to this heavy music and I had blue hair, I had black nail varnish and eyeliner. <laughs> and I don't regret the blue hair, I don't regret the nail varnish, the eyeliner, whatever. But what I do regret is I had these jeans that were enormous. <laughs> and I'm such a skinny guy. I'm so wiry and thin and even more so then. But these days I'm about 70 kilos, which is a sort of average, I guess, for a guy with my height. But I was 58 kilos probably back then. I was really, right. really slim. You know, I yeah. was... If you'd met me, you'd have gone like, "Are you right?" <laughs> like I was really, really, really skinny. I was quite sporty, but I just I could not put on muscle mass and couldn't put on. Um, but the fashion at the time was to wear these enormous baggy jeans mm. when you went to sort of metal clubs and and whatever. But the problem is, is that when you're a skinny, wiry dude, when you wear <laughs> clothes like that you just look like a child wearing your dad's clothes. It doesn't look cool. You, <laughs> no. don't, look, you don't look like you're kind of rebellious and, and, you know, take no shit from the man. You just look like a toddler who's, who's trying to try on someone else's clothes and sort of dragging them around the house, you know, long mm-hmm. sleeves and whatever. And this particular pair of jeans were very, they were sort of bell-bottom at the bottom, but they were incredibly baggy through the leg as well. So yeah. if you imagine incredibly baggy jeans with even flared, wider Ankle sort of section, so they, yes. they just dragged on the floor they it was like <laughs> it was like I had just excess fabric from every direction of my leg,
0: <laughs> yeah, I went through the flares right as a young man and uh, and now, looking back on it almost every photograph, I think, what the hell am I wearing?
2: yeah, but flares at least tapered in on the old bum and the thighs, yeah. They then flared out of the bottom, so there was a sort of there was a sort of elegance to the way they just at the end went ta da a little flourish at the end, whereas <laughs> these were just. Vast. They were like, like I was wearing, like I dismantled a tent and put one on each leg, yes. and they were just, they were so stupid and so impractical. They got so filthy, dragging through the mud and the dirt of you know the city of York where I lived as a student. And I didn't want to buy them at the time, but I think a, my ex girlfriend was like, "You should get these," and I was like, "Yeah, I want to be cool." Yeah, and I, I just, I had such little confidence in my body. Mm. You know, I hated the way I looked. I was so self aware of how skinny I was. I didn't feel like a man. I felt like a little boy. Mm. Because whenever I tried men's clothes on, they just were too big and too, <laughs> you know, and, and so I think I convinced myself to go the other way and go like, right, in that case, buy deliberately big clothes and then sort of tell everyone, this is the trend. This is me saying, Fuck you, I don't yeah. need, you know <laughs> looking looking back, all I can see, I suppose, is just someone just completely lost trying to figure out i don't want to look like them i don't mm-hmm. want to look like you but i don't know how to look like me the blue hair i like i'm not you know i'm not afraid of the blue hair that's fine I, that's whatever but the clothes i just didn't know what i was doing i was just mm. desperately trying to not dress conventionally i guess and it was just really interesting that i suppose uh, at the time i was so lacking in confidence I couldn't figure out even how to rebel properly. (laughs) 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 It's just just, even the act of rebellion. Well, they're back. Yeah. yeah. They're back. They're back. My grandson
0: (laughs) grandson just the other day turned up in enormous clothes. I know. Now, if I'd offered him a set of clothes that were too big for him, he wouldn't wear them. But he actually is buying clothes that are just wide everywhere. Yeah. I know. And I'm seeing it all the time
2: on you know, sort of TikTok. And as you say, like the Gen Z hipster kids who are wearing these enormous baggy jumpers and these mm-hmm. huge sort of shapeless, you just go, oh no, <laughs> no, I thought we consigned those to history.
0: In a way, that's a gift for all teenagers, because every teenager, no matter how gorgeous you are, <laughs> you look at yourself and think, oh my God, I'm a mess. I'm no good.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? I mm. Do you have, do you, do you look back and have you had a sort of cyclical journey on looking back at old photos of yourself and gone, yeah. oh, I, l- I looked better there
0: than I realised? Mostly I look back and think, if only, if only I'd known. Oh, my God, look <laughs> at me, I'm gorgeous. And, and I, Because I look at most young people and think, you look gorgeous. Yeah. You know, you're full of potential and life and energy, and it's all starting. And that emanates from them, this gorgeousness. And so I wish mm. I'd known at the time that that's what the world was, rather that's than, such... oh, my God, I need to do something to make myself not me.
2: Yeah, that's such a well-phrased observation. I've seen that a huge amount from lots of particularly women I know. They've gone back and gone, oh, God, I, I looked great. Mm-hmm. And I was so they they often say i thought i was so fat i thought i was so ugly i thought i was so unlovable and and they look back at themselves and realize they were beautiful they were full of life they were you know yeah yeah and i guess i have that too but i i look back and i see photos of me and go yeah i just didn't know what to do with myself? I just didn't know who to be.
0: Yeah, but then at the same time, we also remember those people who looked at mm. themselves in the mirror and thought, "My God, I'm <laughs>
2: yeah, 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 and they yeah, were, yeah." They sure. were
0: loathsome. So. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's true. I, I I struggle to be around anyone who has confidence. I'm just like, how are you, how are you? <laughs> but it's interesting. I've got to a point now where I have settled on a look that I'm quite happy with, and it's not necessarily the best look in the world. But I just it just it's me. It's who I am. Mm. And so I'm a skinny guy and I will always always be a skinny guy. And so I dress in a way that's quite accentuating of that. I wear skinny jeans. I wear very slim fitting T-shirts and Mm. jumpers.
0: And as time goes on, more and more people become jealous of it. Oh, my well, God! How do you do that? They say
2: <laughs> Maybe, but I think for a long, long time, I was hiding, and now I guess i'm accentuating, mm. but I still don 't feel incredibly confident about it i think i've just i've given up on on resisting. I think I've just gone like, all right, look this is it this is the this is the frame i've got i 'm a skinny guy there's a little bit of middle age weight uh, starting to uh, arrive on the old tummy. But oh, congratulations. <laughs> um, that was lockdown. Just uh, lockdown, just eating dairy milk every day while writing yeah. two books simultaneously. I think I gained about six kilos. Um, but I think it's that that ability to look back at yourself and learn from it, but also the regret of not having the knowledge and the wisdom at the time. I think that's a very human response, isn't it? Mm, yeah. But it's also really interesting to... I remember Dickens was so desperately in love with a young woman when he was young and he was desperate to marry her and he wasn't good enough for her father and, um, and he was sort of heartbroken when she dumped him and then he became a superstar writer, incredibly famous, the most famous man in England probably mm. and then he looked her up and he wrote to her and you see the letters and they're full of his passion and his art. He's married by this point but he's still, you know, he's writing to his ex sort of going, oh, it'd be so lovely to see you, so lovely to see you, whatever. And then they do meet and the next letter is so cold uh-huh. and it's so brutal and it's so horribly dear madam you uh, know Lord. it's and it's like you could see that he's met this woman who in his head is still this gorgeous 18-year-old yes. but of course she's you know she's 42 she's had a couple of kids she's had a couple of health scares whatever she's lived a life she's a an attractive woman in her 40s but she's no longer this angelic and it's just fascinating the way we carry around these young versions of other people in our heads, yes. but also young versions of ourselves in our heads. Mm-hmm. And we sort of are constantly measuring ourselves against who we think we were, who we wanted us to be, who we never were. It's just, it's really, yeah. Uh,
0: hence it's, it's great sad. expectations.
2: Yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. Yeah.
0: Fabulous. Greg, it's been so lovely of you to give me your time and I really look forward to seeing and listening to the rest of You're Dead to Me, which is just the most fantastic podcast and radio show. And it's lovely to see you again. Thank you very much. It's been a joy to talk to you.
2: Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to waffle.
0: (laughs) You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest... Greg Jenner. I hope you had fun fascinating man Greg isn't he do tell your friends if you enjoyed it and do add to the likes or ratings or comments that we've already received the more the merrier so thank you very much you can follow me or even lead me in my time capsule on social media where we are very happy to be contacted and have a chat you'll also discover all things happening on the podcast and what's coming up all true fans of course would have undoubtedly downloaded the theme tune and now be using it as a ringtone if you haven't it's available on Spotify I'm going to release a stain remover through Spotify and I've suggested we call it Spot what do you reckon? Oh, okay, never mind then. Still, that's that idea copyrighted. If you've missed our weekly bonus podcast, then you can hear them if you subscribe to Acast Plus. You'll also get the podcast ad free. And finally, this cast off production for Acast was produced by the one and only John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm going to listen to the brilliant "You're Dead to Me" podcast now and try and discover a bit more about history. I didn't really pay much attention to it when I was at school. But then again, that was so long ago; they didn't. Call They call it history. They call it current affairs. Oh, talking of which, did he hear about the man who had sex with a hot cross bun? Current affairs. Oh, come on, work it out for yourself. Oh, never mind. Bye.